Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Hot Shot Wake Up. This is your weekly wildfire update. Very active wildfire behavior across the nation and continuing across Canada this week. Some of the more prominent fires that we will be talking about and you may have seen in the news cycle is this gray fire that ran through the town of Medical Lake, Washington. All sorts of chaos ensued. Definitely a major emergency situation with what was going on there. High winds in the area. Then up in Elk, Washington, there was this Oregon Road fire that prompted evacuations in Elk. The fires that pushed across Montana, we had this River Road East fire outside of Paradise, Montana, That romped high winds as well, fueling this, evacuations in paradise. The large complexes in California have seen some significant activity, but if you're watching what's coming up the coast of western Mexico, pushing up towards California, there is this Hurricane Hillary that is bringing with it a tremendous amount of precipitation, at least what is predicted. I've seen weather reports saying three to five inches of rain, and in some places up to eight inches of rain, depending on how this thing makes landfall. And it'll be interesting to see if, when, and how that affects the wildfires that are happening up in California. And then just all sorts of other things happening. Um, The town of Enterprise up in the Northwest Territories was absolutely devastated. This mass evacuation of people in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. British Columbia has filed a state of emergency for the entire province up in Canada, which was kind of... I wouldn't say it was shocking, but for them to file a state of emergency for the for a province-wide alert kind of raised my eyebrows a little bit as well. Let's start talking about this gray fire that happened out in Washington near Medical Lake. Now, there are still details coming in. It's still an evolving situation, and a lot of details are still going to come out, but what we know right now, they're saying this thing has pushed over 9,500 acres. The footage that I've been posting on the social media provided by subscribers is showing a tremendous amount of devastation to the community. Again, a very heavily fueled fire by the wind, and it seems that it has started in like the worst area possible. It was started outside of town. With the winds pushing it into the community, uh, multiple homes lost. Uh, I'm hearing reports that it rolled over kind of like a Bible camp, but luckily the Bible camp had concluded like an hour before the fire started, or at least these are the reports that I'm hearing. At least one fatality has been reported at this point in time, and the way this fire rolled through, there wasn't a lot that folks could do. Uh, There were some folks that didn't hear or adhere to the evacuation notices, and then that caused a tremendous amount of panic. There were helicopter rescue missions happening as this fire was pushing through the town, which makes the response to the wildfire very, very difficult because you have bucket ships coming in, tankers coming in, but then also rescue ships that are flying at a very low altitude to try and extract people who were stuck in these neighborhoods as the fire came through. Then this fire up near Elk, Washington, again, just a very fast-moving, wind-fueled fire that pushed through. And then some details on this River Road East fire, which prompted evacuations near Paradise, Montana. 
I know this area pretty well. They are currently saying 500 acres, but my guess it is larger than that at this point in time, but we're still just waiting for updates. This is a very recent fire that has pushed through. It's saying that it's six miles of Plains, Montana, and it jumped the south side of the Clark Fork River where it intersects with the Flathead River, and uh, I've camped there. I've, I've spent a lot of time on that river, and... Once you start getting wildfires on multiple sides of rivers and then there's multiple rivers involved, you start ending up with uh, kind of a difficult logistical mission to just move resources around and how are we going to get them on both sides. And then it gets even harder if the fire affects bridges. Then you really have struggles trying to organize and move folks on both sides. Massive plume coming off the mountainside near Paradise Scrambled to evacuate folks. It sounds like it's going type one. And again, these are evolving fires, evolving situations. You know, last night they said it's a type three fire. Then they said it was a type two fire. And then my inbox started filling up and people are like, nah, they're, they're going to go type one with this thing. Those are kind of the main ones. Out in California, we have the complexes, the Six Rivers National Forest Complex and others that are continuing to burn that we'll touch on here. Uh, in, in the later segment, I'm going to talk about the report that came out involving the hotshot crew buggy that flipped over uh, while it was driving down the road. They just put out their final report on that. So just a heads up, that's what we're going to be covering in the next segment. And if there's any folks out there that are like, oh, you're going to read that study, you're really throwing them under the bus. I reached out to overhead of the crew and said, hey, I know this report came out on one of your buggies that overturned and are you okay with me talking about it? And they said, yeah, that's fine. So it sounds like the crew's in, a, in high spirits. It's one of those accidents that you hate to hear about, but the details finally came out after this took place. Just a heads up, that's coming up in the next segment. And a couple other things we're going to talk about with, um, we're going to kind of talk about the looting issues that a lot of firefighters know about. Like if you evacuate an area, and this is a lot of why residents are concerned about evacuating their homes during emergencies. And I know I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but I'm just letting folks know what's coming up later in the show. Wildland firefighters know that like, when you evacuate an area, you have to watch out for people driving through that community and that area who are there to try to loot and break into people's homes and steal their stuff. Like This happens, and it happens often. And you can try to mitigate that. You set up road guards and bring in sheriff's deputies. But some of these forest roads are, they have so many entrances and twists and turns that people can get in. And there's also people who will dress up as firefighters and try to get into the area. That's occurring up in the Northwest Territories now that they've evacuated tens of thousands of people. There's reports coming out now that the the looters moved in. People are trying to take advantage of that, um, which is just the lowest form of scum on planet Earth people who would do that sort of thing. Um, I have my opinions of what should happen to those people, but if I made them known publicly here, uh, you know, it might be taken out of context. And uh, But they're scum. I'll put it that way. People who loot during emergencies are the, the bottom of the barrel of humanity. So there's stories about that coming out in Canada, and we're going to touch on that as well. But I do want to cover what's happening uh, detailed-wise, uh, operationally around the nation. Uh, a lot of you may know, but some may not. We have moved up to a preparedness level four. A lot of folks were thinking, is this ever going to happen? 
Uh, then we had this large bust of fires, the incident down in Maui that took place. We're actually going to talk about that a little bit as well here in a couple minutes. The new details coming out on that. But the resources have started to be strained a little bit. There are a lot of people sitting at home waiting to get called out still. There's something going on in the contract world where a lot of contractors aren't being called out right now. And even at a preparedness level four, a lot of them are sitting. But if this trend continues, where wildfires continue to push across the United States at the frequency that they are, we might see that bump up to a PL5 here at some point in time. Currently, in the last 24 hours, there were 208 new fires. There were 11 new large fires in the last 24 hours, and there are 55 uncontained large fires. That number has jumped substantially. There are 23 teams currently committed to incidents, and nationally, 65 fires being managed for resource benefit or strategies other than full suppression, basically wilderness fires that they are going to then let burn. Starting up in Northern California, they are at a PL4. They had 35 new fires, 27 uncontained large fires, and they have six teams in the area. As we talked about on the Substack podcast, California Team 1 has been mobilized to help with the Lahaina fire down in Maui. So that takes a tremendous amount of resource power out of Region 5, which is California. There's this Happy Camp complex, six total fires on the Klamath National Forest. It's a Type 1 complex with California Team 5 managing that. This is outside the community of Hamburg. There's plenty of like communication infrastructure that's threatened with that. There are evacuations and road closures in the area. That's currently mapped out at 6,300 acres and already costing $3.5 million dollars. Then there's the SRF Lightning Complex. If you remember, there was an SRF complex last year as well, and that thing romped a long time and was a tremendous amount of fire activity. They made a big box, burned around it, and basically smoked in and socked in that area for well over a month. That's also a Type 1 fire. California Team 2 has mobilized to take that over. It's outside of Hoopa, California. That complex is pushing 5,000 acres no cost at this point in time. Then there's this Smith River complex, very, very active wildfire behavior. Again, I posted some of this footage on the social media that I have. Six fires in that complex, very steep, very rugged ground. That's a type two team. It's California team 15 that is mobilized to take over that. Northeast of Gasket, California. Again, evacuations in place, plenty of road closures. There's some competing acreage on that. I've heard as low as 13,000, as high as 20,000. But again, there's multiple fires. They have to map all of these things and get this acreage together to let people know the total combined acreage. There's no current cost on that one at this point in time, but I'm sure that will change. Then just another spattering of fires that uh, are mostly lightning-caused up in California, they had a massive amount of lightning come through just the last couple of days starting all of these things. And they're just kind of getting the teams in place, bringing the resources in. A lot of crews from the Southwest uh, are starting to move up into California now that the monsoons have started pushing into Arizona, New Mexico. So they're transitioning those national resources up to Northern California. And then included in this is the Lahaina fire down in Maui. If we look at it, they're saying it was a 2,200-acre fire that pushed through this community. 
Uh, the death toll does continue to rise. Right now, we're at 114. There are some people in the community saying they think that it could go as high as 500, um, but they're still pushing through the area to confirm um, how many people are just missing or how many people have actually died because of this fire. Now, on some of the details that have come out on that as a little update, the sheriff is very unhappy with the media. There's a massive media basically blackout from them being able to enter into the town, uh, saying that they're just being very disrespectful of the town and just romping over everything and not caring uh, about the scene and just trying to get pictures and videos for their mainstream media outlets. What has come out is the sirens, the emergency siren systems that were supposed to go off in case of a wildfire emergency were never triggered and they never went off. And then the individual who was in charge of making that call to set the alarms off or not has since resigned from his position. Um, Whether forced out or deciding to do that on his own, clearly this was a problem that took place when this fire was emerging. And then the other thing that's coming out is the hydrants for water weren't producing water. And a lot of folks who were trying to get water to put out these fires were saying that they just weren't, it wasn't available to them. Now, there's some interviews that have come out with the person who's in charge of water distribution in Lahaina. And it's pretty clear that this individual has a different view of water than what most humans would and saying that you know humans shouldn't expect water to come out of the faucet when they turn it on and it's a sacred thing and so on and so forth Um, you know I'm not against the idea that water is a sacred thing I think we should protect it so on and so forth but when there's an emergency you know the decision shouldn't be well we shouldn't let the water go to the hydrants because water's too precious for us to waste it that way Uh, There's calls for his resignation as well. Don't know if that's going to happen. The attorney general of the state said that there is no criminal investigation happening. Hawaii Power or Hawaii Electric has said that they are looking for strategic ways to raise money because they're concerned about bankruptcy now, which is something that I predicted early on, saying that this was going to be a bankruptcy case and they'll probably get bailed out or taken over by the state and it's going to look like California or Oregon. And we've seen this all play out before. The last detail I want to cover about that is the governor is starting to talk about eminent domaining the town, which basically means the government comes in and takes all the land. And the purpose would be to make a full-time memorial in perpetuity, which is the words that the governor used, which means forever unbreaking contract forever. Um, And kind of how that works is the government comes in and decides how much your land is worth and they give you that amount of money and then they take your land. That hasn't gone through yet, but these are the conversations that are happening at that governor level. Still a lot of details to come out. As usual, the rescue and emergency response is being highly criticized by locals, saying it's not happening fast enough. The trust in FEMA down in Hawaii is abysmal. No one trusts them. Uh, you have very like famous, popular Hawaiian people that are making statements, being like, don't sign up for FEMA, don't take the FEMA contracts. You can't trust them, you can't trust them. So it's going to be interesting how that all plays out in the end, and, and I'll keep folks updated. Continuing on in the Northwest area, 
they're at a PL4. They had 11 new fires. And the ones that I talked about at the top of the show were this Oregon Road fire and this Gray fire that pushed through Medical Lake. Again, I won't go over those details again, uh, but I'll keep folks updated on the Substack uh, as we move on deeper into the weekend, because I'm sure more things will come out of that. But there is this lookout fire that's on the Willamette National Forest. That's a Type 2 fire. Northwest Team 6 is up there, north of Mackenzie Bridge, Oregon, pushing 8,700 acres. They have almost 1,000 people on this fire, and a cost of $9.4 million. The bedrock is still burning on the Willamette National Forest. This has been going on for a very long time. That fire is pushing 30,000 acres. Again, they have 1,000 people on it, roughly. And that has cost $40 million at this point in time. There's other ones. The salmon fire, the sourdough fire in the North Cascades is skunking around still. The flat fire on the Rogue River, Siskiyou National Forest, a Type 2 incident. Now, this is the most expensive fire in the nation right now. 34,000 acres, 500 people, $55 million is the cost on that one. If we keep moving to the Northern Rockies, they're at a PL3. They had nine new fires, one new large incident. And a lot of these were fairly dormant for a while before this wind and heat event came through, and a lot of them came back to life. The Ridge Creek Fire in the Idaho Panhandle National Forest, Type 2 fire as well. The Eastern Area Silver Team has taken over that. There's also a critical incident management team. It's a Southern Area Gold Team that has mobilized to head up to the panhandle of Idaho to take that fire over. That's 3,500-plus acres, nearly 600 people on it, and a cost of $9.8 million. The East Fork Fire in the Kootenai National Forest, again, a critical incident management team. Northern Rockies Team 6 took that over outside of Trago, Montana, Heavy wind-driven fire, 3,500 acres, 340 people on it, $7 million of cost at this point in time. And there's just a lot going on here. We have the Ridge Fire on the Flathead, the Tin Soldier Complex, which makes up three fires on the Flathead, Doris Point, which kind of just popped up out of nowhere. This was a fire that started back in July. It was kind of skunking around at 12 acres. Uh, And then they got some sun and some wind on it, and the thing ripped. The Colt Fire, they're basically wrapping that thing up. They're not saying 100% contained or anything like that, but like 46% contained, which is a lot for a fire of that size. That's pushing $27 million. And then as we talked about before, this River Road East fire outside of Paradise. Montana and Idaho continue to be very, very busy as we push deeper into August. The Great Basin, which makes up Nevada, Utah, and part of southern Idaho, they're at a PL3, 32 new fires. The main one being this East Fire on the Boise National Forest. That went type 2. Great Basin Team 6 moved up there. This is outside of Cascade, Idaho. 4,000 acres, pushing 270 people on that fire, $1.5 million. Again, spotting due to winds that push through the area, very warm weather, and this thing was kind of off to the races at that time. The other fires in the Great Basin are kind of gaining containment. And on top of that, it's a bunch of smaller lightning caused fires, fires you would kick jumpers out and send some engines to uh, that are taking place there. The southern area down in Texas at a PL3, they've had some fires skunking around. Nothing huge like you saw last year in Texas, but there's a couple. There's the electric slide fire, 1,500 acres, 
Um, but to look at how many fires, in the last 24 hours, they've had 83 new fires down in Texas. And a lot of that is you just hammer it with tankers and bulldozers and send some engines out there and you wrap these things up. Not a lot of them are getting big, but there are a lot of fires happening. Then if you move out to Colorado, again, nothing major, but there are some fires. 14 fires in the last 24 hours. There's the Bear Creek Fire on the San Juan National Forest. Type 1 team is taking that over. There's the Quartz Ridge Fire again on the San Juan National Forest. And these fires are anywhere between 1,400 acres, 500 acres, and costing around that $1 million mark. Then lastly, we have Alaska. They've started to mellow out a little bit. There's the Anderson Complex, five total fires, 60,000 acres, $9.9 million, and 175 people on it. And then the Lost Horse Creek Fire, that's outside of Fairbanks. They're looking at a fire that's pushing close to 10,000 acres and $7.7 million. And lastly, the Pogo Mine Fire pushing 50,000 acres at $3 million. And then there's a laundry list of other fires that are lightning-caused fires that are unstaffed and just being allowed to burn up in the wilderness of Alaska. If you didn't check out the article on Substack, just uh, update people on what's going on on the Lost Horse Creek fire. They had a firefighter go missing up there. They had a search party go out. They looked for him and ultimately found the individual, stuck him on a helicopter and flew him to Fairbanks Medical to have him checked out. There was a lot of confusion of like what happened, how does this happen, because it's kind of a rare event. Uh, But then talking to some people who are up in that camp and a part of that team, they're saying that uh, the crew that this individual was with out of Oregon, um, this individual, it was said by crew members that he had been picking mushrooms, wild mushrooms around the camp in Alaska, and for whatever reason, Allegedly, it sounds like he decided to eat these things. And then we don't know if he got then sick and and was found incapacitated and they flew him out or if these were actually hallucinogenic mushrooms and this individual was tripping on mushrooms in a fire camp and decided to bail and walk out into the woods and then got lost. There's a lot going on, as you can tell. That was a big update on what's happening. We're going to cover the hotshot buggy rollover that took place and the report that came out. And we're going to have a discussion about looting in emergency disaster areas, which is currently taking place up in Canada. And ultimately, this is what leads a lot of people to not want to abandon their homes. So that's coming up. Thanks to all the paid Substack subscribers. Everything I do is 100% supported through that community. If you want to support what I do and keep these podcasts, updates, articles, donations. Um, And on that note, there was a little Tahunga hotshot that was struck by a tree out in California on one of these complexes up in Six Rivers. There's a GoFundMe up for this individual, uh, very badly injured. And if you want to check out that, I have the link up on the Substack in an article there. But these paid Substack subscribers help me make these donations uh, to these firefighters that get injured because, as we all know, they don't get paid a lot of money. A lot of them don't have benefits or medical, and then you lose your main source of income as a laborer because you've been injured, and it helps the families involved as well. If you want to participate in that, go to thehotshotwakeup.substack.com, click on that subscribe button, and join the community to support all of these things that I try to make 
happen. There should also be a link below if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Just look in the description and there should be a link to the hotshotwakeup.substack.com. So once again, thank you very much to the community that supports. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, the Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. So a report has come out on a vehicle accident that took place uh, with a hotshot crew. And I had heard that this had taken place and a lot of folks, not a lot, a, a couple people had reached out and they said, are you going to cover this? Are you going to cover this? What's your plan? Because this is more of a rare event to see a, a hotshot buggy uh, roll over at speed on a highway and then not hear about it for a while. But obviously they got to get their reports together and put out an official document. And I was kind of waiting for that. And I have, you know, kind of built a rapport with the people who um, supervise this crew, crew superintendent, the assistant, and uh, I respect them and they're nice people. Uh, So I was waiting for this report to come out. When the report did come out, I reached out to them and said, hey, you know, I knew this had happened. I'm planning on covering it. I just want to give you a heads up. Uh, Are you okay with that? And they said, yeah, of course, uh, no worries. And then they gave me some more details outside of the report on, on kind of went, what went down. But we'll cover the official report first, and then we'll kind of have a discussion about this. It says, on June 25th of this year, a wildland fire crew carrier, it was a hotshot buggy, was involved in a single vehicle accident. The vehicle, capable of carrying nine passengers, though only eight crew members were on board, veered off the road to the right on a downhill grade. The driver corrected the vehicle back onto the pavement, but the momentum of the vehicle combined with road conditions resulted in a vehicle rolling onto the driver's side and eventually coming to rest upside down. The crew carrier was one of four vehicles traveling together, which is not abnormal. They're traveling in convoy, and that's, you know, the standard operating procedure when you're driving around with a hotshot crew. The eight individuals were evaluated on scene and later evaluated at a medical facility. Minor injuries occurred. The crew returned to their home unit the following day. It says it was a Thursday when this hotshot crew was ordered to respond to the post-fire southwest of Benson, Arizona. The crew arrived on scene the same day, tied in with the wildland fire incident management team that was there and began fire suppression efforts. The crew worked the following day on the incident and was released at the end of shift and remained overnight in Tucson, Arizona. Seems like a very, very standard assignment. On Saturday, June 24th, the crew was reassigned to pre-position in Cuamado, New Mexico. Due to the time of day the order was processed, the crew traveled to Silver City, New Mexico and secured lodging for the night. The morning of July 25th, the crew was reassigned again to preposition in Luna Work Center. At approximately 08.30, the crew departed Silver City en route to Luna, New Mexico. Again, super standard. You get an assignment. They tell you where you're supposed to go. You wake up in the morning. You check in with dispatch, and they're like, hey, we have totally and completely changed your plans. You're no longer going where we said you were going. You're going to a different place. Here are the details. Off you go. That happens more times than you could ever imagine. If you're not a wildland firefighter, you can be dispatched to a state four states away, and then halfway there, dispatch calls you and said, wait, whoa, 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 change of plans. You're not going to California. You're going to Idaho. 
and then you reroute and you make the changes and you adapt and overcome. Now, moving on to how this all happened, it says that approximately 0930, while traveling on a downgrade S curve on a two lane highway, crew carrier two carrying eight personnel veered off the road on the outside curve, striking a road sign. The driver of the vehicle was able to steer the vehicle back onto the highway crossing into the oncoming lane. The vehicle then rolled over onto the driver's side and slid approximately 45 feet on its side, coming to rest upside down and partially into the oncoming lane. Like, that's a major, major accident. A crew chase vehicle with two individuals traveling at a safe following distance directly behind this crew hall witnessed the incident and immediately responded. Crew Carrier 1, traveling ahead of Crew Carrier 2, saw a cloud of dust and immediately stopped, turned around, and responded to the incident. Crew members contacted the crew supervisor, traveling ahead of the crew carriers, and he turned around and responded. The chase vehicle and civilian responders immediately stopped to assist the crew carrier that was upside down. The crew carrier compartment is equipped with five safety exits. One exit on the top of the vehicle was inaccessible. The main exit door to the rear of the crew carrier compartment was blocked by shelving that broke loose within the crew compartment and slid into the aisle. Now, just for folks who have never been inside a a hotshot buggy, there's shit everywhere. You have all of your gear in there. You have your packs. You have your personal gear bag. You have all of the stuff you want for creature comforts. Everyone's phone, pillows, There's just stuff everywhere. So when you have an accident like this, you know, they hammer you, like tie stuff down, tie stuff down. But if you're going 60 miles an hour and you flip upside down, you know, things are going to move around. And it sounds like that they blocked some of the exits when this did happen. The driver and the front passenger were able to exit the vehicle through their respective doors. Responders looked through the windows of the crew compartment and saw crew members seat belted in and upside down. With concern for the individuals within, responders broke two of the crew carrier windows to gain access to the crew compartment and provide an immediate exit for personnel. Two crew compartments personnel seatbelts were cut to allow the individuals to exit the compartment. Crew carrier one arrived on scene and immediately began traffic control and provided immediate first aid to the individuals in the overturned buggy. Civilian responders also provided immediate first aid to the personnel inside and remained on scene to assist. One civilian responder cut the seatbelt of a crew member within the crew compartment, allowing him to exit the compartment through a window. All personnel within the crew compartment exited the vehicle via broken windows. Crew management contacted their home unit supervisor and made initial accident notifications. Within 45 minutes, notifications made their way to dispatch the home unit, a regional office, and the national office. An email was sent to the Indian Affairs Early Alert email group as well, talking about the incident and additional information was forwarded and received. All personnel involved were evaluated on scene by local emergency management responders and were later evaluated at a medical facility. Only minor injuries such as cuts, scrapes, and a few bruises were reported. Crew supervisors worked with local management to arrange transport of individuals to get gear back to Silver City, New Mexico. The crew carrier was uprighted and transported via tow company to Silver City, and all crew members involved were evaluated at a medical facility and released the same day. 
Now, when the investigation took place, they had a few more details come out. It says the section of the highway was clearly posted with downgrade and curved signage prior to the location of the accident, as well as a recommended speed limit of 35 miles an hour through these curves. Assessment of the scene of the accident indicated that the crew carrier right rear dually tire exited the roadway briefly, causing the rear of the vehicle to pull hard to the right. So there, if you look at the pictures of this incident, there's no shoulder. So if you go off the pavement, you're instantly on gravel and sagebrush, and you're basically driving on the desert. Hotshot buggies have duallys in the back, and it sounds like one of the duallys left the asphalt, hit the gravel, and then veered the vehicle to the right. The crew carrier clipped a directional arrow road sign, and the driver immediately steered the vehicle back onto the roadway into that oncoming lane. It says the total distance from the location of the vehicle's right rear tires coming off the pavement to the vehicle coming to rest was approximately 220 feet. Witness reports and individuals interviewed stated that speed was not a factor in this incident. Yeah, it sounds like the the rear tires left the road and probably hit a rock and caught some gravel, and then you're going to kick loose. You tried to correct it, and the next thing you know, you uh, are in a tight spot. Now, just a couple of the lessons learned that they're pulling from this. Finding one, condition of the vehicle. The crew carrier had been in service for less than two years and had less than 30,000 miles on the odometer. Service records were up to date and were in order. Tires were in good condition and showed no signs of uneven wear or unserviceability. The driver of the crew carrier, who had been on the crew for four years and had been driving that crew carrier for the last four months, reported that the vehicle normally pulled just a little bit to the right. This had not warranted taking the vehicle in for service and was reported as a slight pull. Again, this is like a classic thing on a hotshot buggy, like... They're quirky. They they do pull a little bit one side or the other. And uh, a lot of times you're just like, well, I can deal with it. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, then they touch on fatigue, saying the crew was in their first week of their fourth roll of the season. During the assignment, the crew had worked two days on a wildfire before demobing and remaining overnight in Silver City. They're saying fatigue was not a factor. Then they touch on the road conditions. The section of the highway where the accident occurred had recently been repaved. The original pavement combined with the new pavement created a measurement of approximately nine inches from the top of the pavement to the dirt gravel shoulder. So there was almost a one foot drop from pavement to gravel desert. That seems like a lot. No shoulder on this on this road. Or I guess they're calling it a, a gravel shoulder that was almost a foot drop down. The distance from the outside edge of the white line to the shoulder was approximately 20 inches. The lane of travel measured approximately nine and a half feet across, and the crew carriers measured at approximately eight and a half feet across. The surface of the road was considered excellent conditions. However, the narrow width of the lane of travel combined with the width of the vehicle left little margin for air to stay in the lane while traveling around this curve. The height variation between the road surface and the shoulder was a factor in this incident. When the right rear dually tire exited the road onto this shoulder, the combination of the shoulder height, the height of the old pavement, and the height of the new pavement created a step effect, which could easily pull the dually tire onto the shoulder if the vehicle moves slightly off the pavement. Yeah, it's going to take your vehicle and yank it off the road. That's, that's what's going to happen there. 
Then they touch on speed, which we talked about, saying that it is not a factor in this. And then they say there was insufficient securing of crew compartment storage lockers for potential additional injury. That happens all the time. These clips break on your nets that are supposed to hold everything in. And with the crew carrier flipping over, if one of those things fails, then it's pressure on the other ones. And then the next thing you know, what these have been rated for, they all start to fail. It does say that all occupants in the vehicle were wearing seatbelts. That's hammered very hard in the hotshot culture. If you're driving in a buggy, you put your seatbelt on. Like, put your seatbelt on. That's well known. All seats were equipped with three-point seatbelt harness systems. When the vehicle came to rest, responders saw occupants upside down, still held into their seats by the restraints. Two individuals within the crew carrier had their harnesses attached but had slipped the shoulder belt portion of the seatbelt behind them. Though no additional injuries were noted by these two individuals, one of the individuals got tangled up in the seatbelt when the buckle was released, and the individual attempted to exit the vehicle. This required cutting the seatbelt to allow the occupant to exit the vehicle. Then it moves on to accommodation, saying the crew's quick actions regarding scene safety for both the crew and public during the incident, traffic control, they threw out their triangles, put on safety vests, had their handheld traffic signs, and were instrumental in improving safety during this incident. Crew's response to their own incident within an incident, they had obviously trained for this, they knew the protocols, and response was quick, and they acted accordingly. Incident command was set up, patient triage occurred in a timely manner, scene safety was initiated, and proper and immediate notifications took place to all relevant parties. It sounds like with how bad like this accident was and how out of the blue it was and how it can just catch you off guard that they were dialed and they did everything they needed to do to make sure that this was successful even though it was an emergency situation it says local fire management officials at the home unit worked quickly with regional national and interagency partners to conduct an immediate response to the incident program managers did not hesitate to communicate with their senior management to initiate the most appropriate response Program managers welcomed the lessons learned report and also participated. And the hotshot crew management prioritized interviews with the lessons learned interactions, allowing for open and honest dialogue and discussion. In closing, it says seat belts save lives. On more than one occasion this year, fire personnel have been involved in vehicle rollover accidents. And on more than one occasion, personnel have walked away with minor injuries, having been wearing seat belts. Safety restraint systems should be worn at all times and should be worn appropriately and as designed to maximize safety. So a lot going on there. Obviously a a pretty traumatic incident. Uh, And then talking to folks on the crew and some of their overhead staff, the supervisor, they're saying that the crew was in good spirits. They wanted to go back out on a fire roll, uh, which is to be expected from a hotshot crew. Like when something happens... Um, the, the majority of the crew most of the times is like, yeah, like I don't want to take time off. I just want to keep going. I've experienced that in my own hotshot career, whether it's severe injuries and people are like, let just let me keep going. I want to keep going. Or the tanker 11 crash. We circled up after our crew responded to that. And, you know, we took some days off, but the, the overarching theme of the crew was like, let's just get back on a fire and get moving and, and, and get back to work. Uh, they also gave props to Silver City and said that they were very, very helpful in making this all work smoothly. 
And they made it known that they were very, very thankful to Silver City for helping them through this situation. Again, not something you see all the time. Uh, last year, there were vehicle rollovers, and uh, this sort of thing does happen, but it's it's not something you see happen very, very often. So I wanted to get some closure on that. There have been some people saying, hey, are you going to talk about this? This is They've been kind of hush-hush about it. How come you haven't reported on this? And and the answer is I, I didn't want to really talk about it without knowing all the details. And again, just out of respect for the crew and uh, the overhead staff and supervisors of that organization, I just wanted to wait until the report came out to give the detailed response that I think something like this deserves. So I'm glad to hear everybody's okay. Uh, moral of the story, keep your seatbelts on because that's what saved everybody's lives, even though this thing, from the dually leaving the ground to it coming to rest upside down, this buggy traveled 220 feet. And without those seatbelts, you would not probably be here to tell that story. So just a reminder to the people in the back of the buggies who think that they can just not wear a seatbelt or try to get away with it because... I know, it's uncomfortable. When you try to sleep with a seatbelt, it rubs into your neck, it it causes problems, it tightens up around your waist, you start sweating in the back of the buggy and you become very uncomfortable and you don't want to wear that thing. But in the case you need it, uh, you're going to need it. Otherwise, you're going to have lots of problems. Again, thanks to all the paid Substack subscribers out there, all the free subscribers as well. You folks share and like the articles and podcasts that I put out If you want to support what I do and continue this going on, just go to thehotshotwakeup.substack.com and click on that subscribe button. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. Lastly, today on the show, I want to talk about the theme of evacuations, why people are hesitant, and what has been happening up in Canada. And I know that this happens around the United States as well on wildfires when people evacuate. There are really, really skeezy, scummy people that try to take advantage of this and move into these communities to try to rob these homes and loot these homes that have been evacuated by, you know, sheriff's departments and others. This can lead to people not wanting to evacuate their homes. And this was one of the issues that took place out in Washington state with this gray fire is people didn't really want to evacuate. And they thought to themselves, I'll be okay. There's no way this fire is going to push through town. It's going to stay on the outskirts. It's not going to travel through the neighborhoods. I'm going to stay tight. And the next thing you know, you have helicopter evacuations taking place inside these neighborhoods and cul-de-sacs while you have aerial operations happening because people didn't leave. And, you know, I don't want to hate on people who didn't leave, even though you do create more of an emergency response, because I understand not wanting to have your property looted. And I've talked before on a Substack podcast when I was younger, my entire hometown was evacuated. 80,000 people were evacuated to due to an emergency event. And it was pretty intense, and it was it was massive. It was massive uh, evacuation of, of nearly 100,000 people. And the story I tell is my uncle and my dad rolled back into town when they really probably shouldn't have um, to go check on pr- their properties to see if people were looting and breaking in because they knew that this was a real possibility. 
And this is the sort of thing that happens when you get horrible, horrible human beings that really don't deserve to be a part of society decide to take advantage of these things. Now, fast forward, move to Canada, and we're talking about 20,000 people being evacuated from Yellowknife and these other communities up in the Northwest Territories, and now they are reporting that they have a looting problem in these smaller towns up in in Northwest Territories. This article is out of Cabin Radio, and I've talked about them before. They have been doing an excellent job reporting on this stuff in the Northwest Territories. They're a local news source up there. And the article says, Royal Mounted Police in Yellowknife say a 77-year-old man was threatened in his apartment by a man and a woman with a baseball bat after almost the entire city had been evacuated. According to police, two people stole cash, a cell phone, and other items from a man with a territorial capital otherwise deserted. A wildfire 15 kilometers west of the city triggered an evacuation order Wednesday night with more than 19,000 people leaving. The police have increased presence in Yellowknife to patrol the streets in the absence of most residents. Officers alerted at 11.10 p.m. on Friday used surveillance footage from a building to quickly identify and arrest a 34-year-old man and a 30-year-old woman from Yellowknife. I say put these people on a helicopter and fly them up into the Arctic and drop them off and leave. That's my take on people like this. It says the police have the two held in custody and they will be released on Saturday under a condition to leave Yellowknife for the duration of the evacuation order. They will be transported to an evacuation departure location and released. Charges against the individuals are pending. Meanwhile, a 40-year-old man and a 41-year-old woman from Fort Good Hope faced charges related to trafficking after being stopped at 5 a.m. on Saturday in Yellowknife's Franklin Avenue. Those individuals were found traveling through the city with a mass amount of crack cocaine. So, if you look at the people who have stayed behind in evacuation areas, they are people who are trafficking massive amounts of crack cocaine and running around with baseball bats trying to rob houses. Scum. They are scum. It says the male driver, when pulled over, attempted to grab a large hunting knife that was concealed in the vehicle. The male was arrested, handcuffed, and didn't sustain any injuries. They will also be released on Saturday and not allowed to be in Yellowknife during the evacuation order. They too will be dropped off at an evacuation departure location. It's amazing that they catch and release is what they call it. They say that they have received other reports, up to six reports of suspicious persons, two reports of break and enters in the town, though none of the complaints were found to be a break and enter following the investigations. Some Yellowknife residents forced to leave their homes have expressed concern about their properties being looted in their absence. Yes, those are real concerns because it looks like that is happening. The calls are coming in from essential personnel who have remained in Yellowknife and are doing an excellent job of keeping watch over the neighborhoods, said Captain Matt Halstead of the Royal Mounted Police. The Royal Mounted Police have also received numerous complaints from people who are evacuated, but have been watching their doorbell security cameras and are reporting people and movement around their homes and looking into windows. These calls are appreciated and we will follow up on them when we have the time. So, just a quick conversation before we go. These are the reasons people hesitate to evacuate. You can't pack up all of your belongings. You can't take everything with you. You're moving quick, and you're concerned that if you leave, something might happen to this stuff. And 
the police are trying to do the best they can. It doesn't help that they catch people high on crack cocaine with baseball bats robbing 77-year-old men in their homes, and then they release them the next day and say, hey, will you just please not come back to this area until you know we say it's okay? I think that's the wrong way to go about it, but that is the way that they're handling this. And then the rumors spread because you do have these now Wi-Fi connected cameras that you can just sit and watch if you're not at your home. And numerous residents in Yellowknife are saying there's people, there's marauders walking around our properties and peering into windows. And we're seeing a lot of movement from individuals or groups of people that are wandering around the neighborhoods looking into homes. It's a problem. Um, Horrible people take advantage of these situations. And a lot of the time, like if you're a homeowner, maybe not in Canada because they're pretty strict on the gun laws, but like looters get shot. Like that's how it works. If you look back at the LA riots and, uh, you know, there's this famous story of the rooftop Koreans during the LA riots, they didn't allow it. They were armed and they stood on top of the roofs of their shops and, uh, got in gun battles with looters saying, this is my life and my property and you can't take it. And, you know, quite frankly, I find that to be acceptable because once you reach the emergency situation, your police and your EMS and everybody else, the sheriff's department, they become very, very strained. And you basically are at a point where you need to protect yourself. And if someone's trying to break into your home to take your stuff during an emergency, um, you have the right to defend yourself and say, no, don't come in here. Now, the problem is, is these people target easy victims, such as a 77-year-old man living by himself, and they walk in with a baseball bat, threaten to kill him and take all of his stuff. Then the police arrest him and they let him go a day later. But I just wanted to touch on that because people often ask, why are people so hesitant to leave these evacuation zones? And, and why don't they want to leave and... I don't understand. I don't understand. Well, there's a lot of reasons, but this is a major one. The other reason is they think they can defend their home on their own. They have sprinkler systems set up. Uh, They've cleared uh, safety areas around their home, and they think that they can weather the storm when like things come through, such as a wildfire. But the big one is I don't want people breaking into my house and stealing all of my stuff. I don't know the solution to stopping that completely. Uh, Maybe you just start dropping looters off in the Arctic Circle on a helicopter and then you leave and then you make that known and say, (laughs) hey, we uh, we left the last folks up in the middle of nowhere with the polar bears. Uh, Maybe you should think twice before breaking into a home to try to rob an elderly man high on crack cocaine. You know, these are the types of people you can't reason with. So maybe make examples of some. And I know that might be harsh in some people's mind, but. You know, I'm open to solutions if people want to offer a solution to me as well on what can be done. There's a ton of news I didn't get to. We're going to cover it on the Substack coming up early next week. Again, these updates on these raises and the pay cliff that's happening, more updates with the stuff that's happening in Maui. And I'm sure whether it's the Pacific Northwest, the hurricane pushing into California or the fires in Idaho and Montana, there'll be plenty to talk about. So tune in there on the Substack. If you want to listen to that show, it's for paid Substack subscribers only. Just go to the hotshotwakeup.substack.com, click on that subscribe button for a monthly subscription, and then you have all of that available to you, all the articles available to you, all of the archives, the workouts. You help participate in these donations that go out quite often 
to firefighters that have been injured, and I couldn't do it without any of you. So I appreciate that. You just go to the hotshotwakeup.substack.com. On that note, reach out to someone you haven't talked to in a while, see how they're doing, check in on your homies, get outside, get the fresh air, sunshine on your skin, exercise, eat those quality calories because those are the ones that count. Hydrate, stretch, get the rest you need because that's what you need to recover. But always remember, when you get up, you got to get it done. Uh. Uh.